Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyday Sublime. This is your host, Josh Summers, and this is the podcast dedicated to exploring what I'm calling a full-spectrum spirituality. That is a path of practice uh, and realization that includes shadow elements of being, our light aspects of being, and the development and harmonization of unity between the two. Um, And in this podcast, I begin the 2021 season with a new Dharma talk. This Dharma talk was recorded a few weeks ago um, as part of the ongoing Sangha sessions that Terry and I host uh, weekly online. And this particular talk, uh, which I'm calling, what am I calling it? I'm calling it the obstacle, the way of obstacles. That's it, the way of obstacles. And the idea here is that in this talk, I try to give a, a, a sort of a broad review or overview of some of the key features of what I consider to be the spiritual path. That includes, as you'll hear, the emphasis of developing kindness, or what in, in Buddhism is referred to as metta, a feeling of friendly kindness towards oneself and experience. That's a key component of contemplative development. And then from kindness, one of the roles that kindness plays on the spiritual journey is that it, it supports and facilitates the experience of samadhi, or stillness. And when we are kinder to ourselves, when we're kinder to our experience, it it just releases us from the mind's propensity to create conflict or be in a state of contention with experience. When there's the release of that contention, then the emergence of stillness is is much more um, available. It's more easily easy to recognize. So we start to calm down and come to a a gathered, unified, collected state of being. And samadhi isn't the goal. Stillness is not the goal, at least in the Buddhist practice. But it's a, it's a very, very helpful development in one's being so that when we're still, and the, this is the basic theory, when we become still and quiet, we are much uh, more objective in our ability to look upon ourselves and our experience. We develop um, much less uh, we develop a much clearer lens of perception. Our lens of perception is not as distorted by uh, desires, aversions, etc. Which brings me to the theme of this talk, the way of obstacles. Um, in this talk, what I try to do is introduce uh, a, a set of commonly referred or commonly referenced um, energies of being that make samadhi challenging. And these tend to refer to get, get referred to as the hindrances, and they include desire, aversion, restlessness, sleepiness, and doubt. And what I try to introduce in this talk is just a, 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 a meta frame or a broad overarching frame for how to consider these energies. Um, my, my basic thesis, as you'll hear, is that these energies tend to be um, maligned and universally seen as problematic. And if they arise, they tend to be interpreted as evidence that something's gone wrong in one's practice. But that need not be the case. And as I'll be arguing, or arguing is a strange word, but as I'll be sort of reflecting over the next several weeks um, in these talks, I see these energies as, as, as being uh, an, into, an integral part of the human condition. And um, it, it's a disservice, I think, in our practice if we're trying to move away from them or get rid of them or overcome them rather than uh, opening them, opening to them as a vital part of our being and learning how to integrate and harmonize their role in our life. So that's what I'll be looking at as we go forward. Um, and if you'd like to join us along that journey, if you'd, if you'd like to participate in, in the live sessions, either the, the live Dharma talks and discussions and meditations or the live yoga classes that Terry and I teach, um, throughout the week, you can do that by becoming either a beneficiary or a sustaining member to our Sangha. And that's available, or the information for that will be available in the show notes, or you can just go to our website, uh, joshsummers.net forward slash Sangha, S-A-N-G-H-A, and that will show you all the, the information regarding participation with our programming. Um, but I am, the feedback I've gotten about this uh theme that I'm teeing up has been very positive, and it seems like many people are looking for ways to work with these challenging energies in a 
in a pr productive and more enlightened way. So uh, I look forward to, to bringing you all that. And for now, I'll just give you this week's talk and look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Until then, be very well and stay safe. In, in terms of talking about sort of some of the themes that I want to be moving us into or, or exploring with you over the next few months, likely. One, they both, before I go on, I should say, the, the backstory on the themes I want to explore um, relate to uh, two people that have influenced me quite a lot. And uh, the first person who I want to mention that influenced me quite a lot is my late friend, uh, Michael Brooks. And uh, he, Michael Brooks, was a, a wonderful guy. Um, I met Michael on my very first retreat in 2001. And it was his first longer retreat. He had, Michael was uh, 10 years younger than me, but he had been part of a, um, a sort of a, a young adult Dharma group that was started for um, people that were younger, a younger generation that, that seemed to have uh, interest and, and, and potential in, in, in both practice and teaching of the Dharma. And so Michael was sort of in a part of this younger Dharma group that would meet on Martha's Vineyard every summer and have their own special retreat with teachers from the Insight Meditation Society. And, um, and he, but he had never done a longer retreat. So when we, he came on uh, that first retreat that I did, it was the nine day retreat. And um, we kind of had each other when uh, one of us mentioned the work of Ken Wilbur, who's a philosopher that I, has influenced me quite a bit. And uh, at, the, at the name, the mention of Ken Wilbur's name, it was sort of, there was a, a kismet of, um, that's the word, there was a, a spark of, um, of a bromance between us. And uh, he was just about to start his undergraduate uh, program at Bates, not far from where I'm living now um, in Maine. And, um, and, and we were very tight for, for a number of years. Um, and after he graduated from college, this is the part that I want to get to, uh, he and I both independently, so independent of each other, we ind independently were starting to read from some of the the researchers in a in an academic field called behavioral economics. Now that phrase, behavioral economics, tends to make most people that I, I speak to in the in the yoga spiritual world they they tend to like glaze over and their eyes roll back. So let me try to give you a very clear, simple nutshell of what I think behavioral economics is about, and then talk about what Michael and I were why Michael and I were interested in that. Um, Basically, and the, my elevator pitch on behavioral economics is, is that traditional economics, as I understand it, tends to look at how humans make decisions, assuming humans are rational agents. So the idea is that when someone has all the information laid out before them, uh, uh, homo economicus, or the, the, the person who is as is, is rationally enlightened, when they have all the information laid out in front of them, they will make the best decision in their in their rational self-interest. And uh, behavioral economics comes along and, and is, is very much in informed by uh, the field of cognitive psychology. And behavioral economics looks at how people actually make decisions. And it shows over and over and over again in, in these very ingenious uh, studies that they've done, how people will make irrational decisions you know, decisions that are against their best interest, but make irrational decisions in predictable ways. And the first book that I came across that, that kind of uh, explored these themes is a book by the uh, academic and behavioral econ economist Dan Ariely, who's now at Duke. Um, but he wrote his first book was called Predictably Irrational. And I highly recommend it to anyone that's looking for a, a good easy to read um, primer on on this field. But as I read it, as I started understanding how 
the you know modern psychology and behavioral economics was looking at how people make decisions and showing again and again and again how we 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 habitually make irrational decisions. Um, one of the takeaways from this research was that uh, when they looked at people and how they made decisions, they found that those people who were endowed with the capacity to think about their thinking process, so what is often termed as metacognition, those that had kind of the habit of thinking about their thinking, having a metacognitive habit, people that, that had that skill were better this, uh, better able to make better decisions. They were better decision makers. Um, and that, that interested me because um, as a Dharma practitioner, I, A, the, the sort of the pitfalls of decision-making that, um, that the behavioral economics fields was discussing spoke to the way that our emotions and feelings and intuitions can lead us astray. They can they can cloud our perception. They can sh- sort of shape how we see things, and get us to act in ways that aren't necessarily in our best self interest. So I started to see um, meditation, mindfulness, insight meditation um, as ways of helping overcome the kinds of uh, biases or cognitive biases in our brains that influence our decision-making in irrational ways. And then when I reconnected with my buddy, Michael Brooks, uh, you know, he, he had started reading some books in the, in the field from, from other authors, and we were, we're, we were more or less seeing the same potential, that, that, that mindfulness could be taught as a training in metacognition to become aware of perceptual biases and then put us in a better position to to transcend the, the the unskillful or negative implications of those biases and help us thrive better. Um, and the creative fruit of that, um, that insight and that collaboration was our first book, or the, really the only book we wrote called The Buddhist Playbook, which came out in 2009. Um, <clears throat> but around that time that we were writing this book, um, he, Michael, and I also became very interested in the work of the second person I want to tell you about tonight, whose name is Robert Wright. And um, I had met Rob, Robert Wright, or Bob, as he goes by Bob. I met Bob uh, on his first retreat in 2004. So I met Michael on his re- first retreat in 2001, which was my first retreat. And then I met Bob on his first retreat in 2004. And there's something about first retreats, I think. When you do a first retreat, there's such a sort of a baptism by fire experience. And the, the people that you connect with tend to, um, whether you know it or not at the time, tend to become your karmic brothers and sisters over time. And, and that has definitely played out for me. Um, so I met Bob on his first retreat, but I didn't know who he was um, in the sense that I came to find out and came to learn that he was a somebody. Um, I met him. We first started speaking just after the retreat ended when uh, there was an opportunity to have lunch and sort of hang out with other retreatants and, and talk to people about their experience on retreat. Um, Bob came up to me and, and uh, kind of started to grill me with some very deep and, and serious questions about the nature of consciousness and, and practice. And I didn't feel like I had very satisfying answers for him at the time, uh, but I referred him to Ken Wilbur among, among some other people. But we got to talking, and while we were talking, um, a younger um, man came up to Bob and said, excuse me, sir, are you Bob Wright? And Bob sort of humbly nodded, yes, I am. In fact, I am. And, and at that point, I, an alarm went off in me. I said, well, wait a minute, you're somebody? Who is who's Bob Wright? And in, a, in his own kind of deprecating, self-deprecating way, he just said, oh, I'm a, I'm a journalist and a writer. Um, and I, I, he didn't say much more than that. But after I got off the retreat and I did the obligatory Google stock of him, I looked him up online and immediately discovered that he has written a, a handful of really interesting books. Um, all of them have been New York Times bestseller books. Uh, one of them was <clears throat> selected by Bill Clinton. To uh, Bill Clinton had his entire cabinet read one of the books. Um, and and these are sort of big 
big idea books. And, and one of the things that Bob first started writing about was evolutionary psychology, how natural selection essentially shaped and designed our minds and really influenced. So the, the kind of the cognitive biases that behavioral economics was talking about were in, in Bob's model, uh, essentially um, frames of understanding things uh, that have been, has been ironed out or banged out by millions of years of natural selection. And um, <clears throat> when Michael and I became interested in Bob's work, because Bob also had a, um, has a big, uh, he's a polymath. He's got a mind that will take in domestic politics, um, international politics, history, science, particularly the history of science. He brings all these things to bear in terms of his worldview. He's got a very complicated but interesting and fascinating worldview. And um, one of the things he's uh, deeply committed to is, is trying to figure out how humans can transcend their tribalistic impulses, these impulses that come from these cognitive biases baked into us from natural selection. How can we transcend them and how can we support a culture of, of, of cohesion and understanding and compassion and empathy and, and, and minimize the impulses for warfare, tribalism, conflict, enmity, and these things. And back in 2009, when Michael and I were hanging out writing our, our little book together, we would watch interviews that Bob would do on his own platform called Blogging Heads TV. Bob would do a split screen interview with someone from a foreign policy establishment, someone from psychology establishment, someone from philosophy. He just would interview all sorts of people and he just had these fascinating conversations that would um, really titillate me intellectually. Like I was just, I had found this, this man who, whose mind was so big and broad that it was able to contain so many of my own interests from, from my own undergraduate studies and my meditation studies and psychological explorations. All of it was kind of coming together in Bob's work. And so I would, part of the way I would recreate was just to literally watch these uh, video interviews that Bob was um, doing, which has now become his own podcast. But um, <clears throat> this is the personal part of the story. Uh, around that time, around 2000, maybe it was 2000, getting into 2011, um, Bob wrote a beautiful book called The Evolution of God, where he methodically looks at how uh, really the conception of God has evolved over time. And one of the drivers, he says, in terms of how the conception of God evolves is the driver of how humans are interacting with each other on the ground. And it's impossible for me to summarize this too much now, but his basic uh, thesis is that when, when, when groups of people are in a zero-sum relationship where they're, 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 um, their outcomes of their interaction are inversely correlated, where if one group wins, the other group loses, the other, second group wins, the, the first group loses, there's a zero-sum relationship or a zero-sum game. When that dynamic is established, when there's an upside, a, a winner and a loser, and there's the, the, people are competing against each other for... Um, limited resources. This tends to bring about a uh, sort of a, a conception of God that is um, kind of warring, violent, uh, not so uh, uh, collaborative. <laughs> you know, there's there's a, there's definitely a sense of tribalistic difference between the the, the good tribe and then the bad tribes out there. But he's shown in that book that as societies have grown and as and as as people across the globe um, have become more and more interdependent on each other, with first with trade and then with technology, that as our 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 development of complexity as a species into more greater and greater interdependent networks has come to be. We are now more and more playing what he calls a non-zero-sum game, meaning our outcomes are not inversely correlated. Our outcomes are directly correlated to how we can collaborate with each other. 
And so you could take take the current example of, of the pandemic, um, where we really haven't had a lot of global organiz- uh, global organized response. We've had a lot of you know independent national response, and particularly in the states, we've had very little cohesive national response. We have um, we have lack of co- uh, global or national leadership on that. But without without that um, ability to facilitate collaboration with parties that are are involved in this non-zero sum game where you know our outcomes are are directly correlated to each other if we if we collaborate and cooperate we have a chance of winning like whether it's working with a pandemic climate change any of these massive things when we collaborate we have a chance of winning but when we fight when we see each other our outcomes as being inversely uh, correlated uh, we can we we play kind of the worst possible game where we it's an us versus them dynamic and that that leads to um, very suboptimal outcomes. <clears throat> so Michael and I, I'm getting a little off track here, but Michael and I were very very uh, inspired by Bob's worldview, his writing, uh, and around this time that his book uh, The Evolution of God came out, he gave a talk. Bob gave gave a talk at the Harvard Bookstore in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And and Michael and I both went hoping to uh, to take Bob out for a drink after or get a quick bite after just to be able to pick his brain and, and, and share some ideas or bounce some ideas off him. But as it would go, Bob was uh, not able to, to, to socialize with us after his talk. Uh, but Michael and I hung out still. And, and Michael made this comment. He said, you know, he won't come out with us tonight. And this is in 2011. He said, but someday we're both going to be hanging with him. And I kind of looked at Michael and I remember we were sitting on my back porch uh, when he said it. And and Michael was prone to these kind of very grandiose pronouncements. Uh, When I first met Michael, he was talking about becoming president of the United States or running for Senate at some point. Now I'll come back to that in a second because he probably could have done that. But um, he had these, he had grandiose visions. He, he really saw uh, a, a big role for himself in the world. I did not. I still don't. I don't have grandiose visions for myself. I, at least I don't think I do. Um, I don't see myself as being uh, remarkable or exceptional in, in any way. Um, and I feel very comfortable and, and grateful for being able to to work with people in meditation and yoga. I feel like these are um, things that I have some facility around, but the idea of talking to Bob Wright on a, on an interview, a video recording interview is something that not only did it terrify me, but it just seemed completely like impossible. I didn't see how this would ever come about, but lo and behold, um, and I, and I can't really, uh, it would take too much time to walk you through all the, 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 the steps that, that happened that brought me to this point, but tragedy struck last summer when Michael was uh, was taken out by a, a blood clot. It was uh, he was 36 years old and and he died very suddenly from a, from thrombosis. Um, the first person to contact me about his death was Bob Wright, um, and. One of the reasons was Bob didn't know that Michael and I were friends, but in the intervening years, Bob and I had run into each other on retreats a little bit more, and we had started emailing, and we had struck up a bit of a relationship as friends, um, primarily focusing around the Dharma, but independent of Michael. And then in his own way, Michael had started his own podcast called The Michael Brooks Show, which covered was very much focused on uh, progressive politics, um, but he he himself had hosted Bob Wright on his show several times and Bob was scheduled to be on Michael's show the week after Michael died. So the reason why Bob was the first person to reach out to me was that in reading and in Michael's obituary online, he saw my name listed as a co-author on the book that Michael wrote that we wrote uh, the Buddhist playbook. And so he, out of nowhere, Bob, I got a text from Bob saying, I, how did I not know that you wrote a book with Michael Brooks? How did I not know you were even friends? <laughs> so there was this convergence of 
my relationship with Michael and my relationship with Bob and us, this thing coming together. Um, <clears throat> I'm sort of losing my, my place right now, but uh, Bob, because Bob was scheduled to be on Michael's show to talk about cognitive empathy and how cognitive empathy could help us overcome sort of toxic politics and reactionary politics and, and tribalism. Um, it was suggested by one of Michael's fans that Bob continue to have that conversation. And so because I was, he, I was friends with Michael, Bob said, Oh, well, why don't I have that conversation with you? And we did, and it was okay. But, um, in connecting with Bob around that, uh, he and I had some unrecorded offline conversations about his work and his growing sense, Bob's growing sense of wanting to um, sort of get the essence of his message out to a broader audience. Um, uh, you may not have heard much about him before or before I keep kind of squawking about him, but, you know, in the, in the intellect, in the public intellectual world, uh, Bob really is one of the top. Um, I don't know how else to say it. Uh, uh, I think it was Fortune magazine or um, Harper's magazine. One of these magazines named him one of the top 25 intellectuals in the world a few years back. Um, just a big thinker. Um, and I, I, I always value my ability to dip into his work. Um but in talking with Bob offline, I started to encourage him. I said, you know, what really needs to happen, Bob, is that you need to articulate your own dharma because your dharma, how you thread evolutionary psychology, game theory, and Buddhism, and, and sort of behavioral economics, how you bring all those things together is a unique expression of the dharma in a way that it's it's trying to serve humanity as a way to reduce and mitigate unnecessary conflict in the world. So with that, um, he, Bob and I did start uh, this series. We've had, I think, two or three conversations now that have been recorded. And I, I sent out one of them in the newsletter uh, where we had a, a conversation about um, the Christian conception of, of logos. I'm not going to repeat much about that there, but just to say that this is... Um, what I'm trying to get to is it's quite personally for me personally, this is a very uh, odd, uncanny and somewhat spooky occurrence. The fact that my friend Michael Brooks predicted in 2011 that I would be having a conversation, conversations, ongoing conversations even with Bob Wright. And now that that's happening, it I don't know how to, how to hold that it's 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 too bizarre it, and it doesn't feel like um so i'm trying like i don't feel worthy of it in a way <laughs> it's, it's like this is an intellectual giant to me um but if i might say one thing about it is that i feel m my hope is that in talking to bob i can help uh translate to a general audience translate some of his very beautiful uh, ideas and make them accessible to to you. And one of the things that um, I have been thinking about over this interim, this break, is that uh, in in Buddhism and the Dharma, there's often a sense that a practitioner, the more they practice, the more perfect they'll become as a human. So like they'll they'll transcend their greed, they'll transcend their hatred, they'll transcend their petty jealousy, they'll transcend all the things about of human nature that we tend to see as bad, evil, or, or unskillful. They'll take those things and transcend them and cultivate all these wholesome, beautiful qualities. And that creates a a sense of the Dharma where uh, you know we're trying to become godlike or or become less human-like in a way. And I've, for a while now, for many years, I've been skeptical about those descriptions of what awakening mean, that awakening is, is in any way a, a kind of a movement towards the perfection of being a, a perfected human. Um, and as I've been thinking about it over the last few weeks, if not longer, it, it occurs to me that 
in some ways, that perfected ideal of awakening, that when we practice, we will become a more perfected being. At the root of it is the idea that we'll somehow transcend our biology. And, and if I give an example here, this might be a, might come come home for you more. But one of the things, one of the ways that awakening is defined in Buddhism is that we become free of greed, hatred, and delusion. And oftentimes desire in general is seen as a problematic emotion or problematic mindset that clouds our perception and causes us to suffer when we have desire. So what tends to happen is whenever someone experiences any kind of desire when they meditate, they feel like this is a, an impediment, an obstacle. It gets called a hindrance, uh, that there's some sort of a problem with that state. And, and the, the experience, the presence of desire in your being is just, it just becomes confirmation that you have got more work to do. That because you have, you are noticing the, the rising of desire in your heart or your mind or your being, because you see desire for, say, a piece of chocolate or another cup of coffee or a desire for a warmer shirt or whatever it is, um, because you see that desire, it tends to be interpreted as, uh, you know, best of light, more work to be done to transcend and sort of expunge desire from your being. Um, or at worst, it just it, it gets interpreted as, a, as an, an indicator that you're failing, that there's a failure in your practice. And it occurs to me that this is this is rather inhumane. Uh, that I don't think more and more I'm starting to realize that I don't think we actually are capable of transcending our biology. I think that's a that's a kind of a, an an unrealistic ideal that gets imposed on practice that we will somehow practice enough and sufficiently enough that we will transcend our biology and i will be this is the theme that i'll be exploring with you guys over the over the next several months in 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 much more down-to-earth concrete ways but i don't see us transcending our biology what i see happening is and this gets back to what bob wright talks about i see us transcending or transforming the the programming that has been baked into us from uh, natural selection in terms of our minds, so our evolutionary psychology, our minds evolved in you could say ancestral environments thousands of years ago, and uh, we developed certain programs of being in the world that were appropriate to those ancestral environments, but because social evolution or cultural evolution is now moving at a far faster pace than biological evolution. Our culture, the environment that we're in, is nowhere near what it was in the, in the ancestral evolutionary environment. Now, what that means is we're, we're, we are, we have, we're basically a, um, a dynamic of programs that has been etched by natural selection, that is now in an, in an environment very different from the environment it was designed to be adapt or be optimally thriving in. Simple example, um, I'm sure there are many more that I could come up with, but a simple one is simply that uh, our, our, our penchant and our, 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 our liking of sweet things. In the envi in ancestral environment, sweet things that we could find were berries. Know, berries, you know, loaded with antioxidants, um, very nutritious in small quantities in the, in, the, in the quantities that existed in, in ancestral environments. So our, does our, our pleasure that we get from sweetness was just enough in that environment to help us seek out the berries that were going to be helpful to us um, to help us survive and, 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 and reproduce. Fast forward to the current environment where we are now in a, in, a, in, a, in a context where we could have an, an, an un, so we're, uh, a limitless supply of sweet things. This is, we are not equipped to handle that temptation. So this is where we get people that are start to develop addictions to sugar or any kind of sweet thing that, um, that leads to um, bad 
health outcomes like diabetes or obesity. So the idea is that we're, you know, we we have a, a mechanism or program in us that um, is is oriented to seeking sweet things evolutionarily in the ancestral environment that was a really important thing but now in this current environment that's causing us all sorts of problems and there's many many examples of this so rather than seeing the dharma as a path of transcending and overcoming our biology which is simply uh, the desire for things the version aversion to getting away from things that are harmful or threatening I see the Dharma, I'm starting to develop a thesis or theory that the Dharma is better thought of as a way to help us transform psychological frames, biases, impulses that were very effective in the ancestral environment, not so effective in the modern environment, help us transform those impulses so that we can, in a sense, nourish the better angels of our nature so that we can actually thrive in this current environment and not be um, sort of cornered into states of addiction, hatred, anxiety, apathy, and cynicism. And I'll, I'll say more about that, but that relates to the hindrances of meditation that we're gonna be looking at over the next several months in practice. So um, I know that this is a, of a long rambling talk, I, I realized that um, going into this, I was going to be more of a, a personal share about um, where I was, where Terry and I are right now, um, some of the themes that have come to me through my friendships with Michael Brooks and Robert Wright. Um, but I'm very, for me, this is the cutting edge of how I see the Dharma, that, 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 we're, that we're going to be um, compassionately and kindly opening to understanding sort of our our evolutionary heritage or our evolutionary inheritance. So we don't have to shame desires. We don't have to shame dislikes and hatreds. These are, these are, these are essentially programs that we, that, that um, have been onloaded into us from thousands, if not millions of years before we were ever born. So all the difficulties we face in meditation are, are not our fault. They're not really, you know, they're, they're not our, due to our agency. We tend to take them very personally and that we tend to shame ourselves for having these difficult energies. But these things have been and wired into us over courses of millions of years. So with that understanding, what I want to recommend is that we bring a very kind, gentle energy or a meta-meta sort of an overarching kindness towards all experience so that we get to know it and, um, and develop a way to thrive within, within these patterns. So I'm going to stop the sort of the, the rambling nature of this talk right now and, and try to uh, distill it into a reminder around some instructions. Um, and for today, there won't be. I'm not going to record the um, the meditation piece. So I'll, I'll just review some of the instructions that I gave before our uh, winter break, and then um, in the next week or two, we'll start to develop more from here. But the basic idea is that um, in meditation, uh, before we get into you know pointing out specific features of experience, before we get into uh, to try and develop a clear perception of what's happening. It really, really behooves us to develop a, a broad foundation of kindness and friendliness and okayness with things so that we settle down. And that, that friendly metta that we start with allows us to settle down and that helps nourish a sense of samadhi, which is a, an experience of stillness. And it's within the stillness, once we start to taste the still dimension of our being, from there, we can then start to see the nature of our, our experiences and conditions in us and, and get a better pers perspective and understanding about those conditions so that we can relate to them and, and work with them in a new way. So as I said before break, uh, rather than doing uh, metta or friendliness practice, loving kindness practice with many phrases that we repeat and send to a variety of different uh, recipients, I think it's far better in the beginning 
to simply start with a generalized phrase of kindness towards your experiences in meditation themselves. Um, and a few of you emailed me over the break about the phrases you were using. I want to pick out one as an example where the phrase that the, the student used was, may I receive all of the world's events with peace and equanimity. And, um, and I understand the intention of that. And I think the, the, the broad intention behind it is wonderful. But in terms of a point or a phrase for practice, if I were to refine it a little bit, I would say it might be, and I, I just say might because I don't know how it worked for you, but it might be more effective. It might be more skillful, might be more helpful to frame the question or frame the phrase that you're going to use towards experiences and practice themselves. So if I were to adapt it, I'd say instead of saying, may I receive all the world events with peace and equanimity, I might say, may I receive this experience with peace and equanimity. So when you're practicing, when you're sitting with yourself and being open to yourself as you are, when you drop the phrase in, you're, you're, orienting, you're using the phrase to orient your heart, your heart's intentions of peace and equanimity to whatever is going on as it occurs. So uh, we're just working with the very tangible, within-reach experiences of, of your moment-to-moment -moment experience. So a phrase like, may I receive this experience with kindness and equanimity? May I open to this experience with tolerance? May I receive this moment with gentleness? Or may I hold this moment with gentleness? Um, and, and as I try to say, you can adapt the language. So the verb, like, do you like to hold, do you receive, to connect? Do you want to connect or um, uh, be present to? You can change out the verb, whatever verbs work for you. And you can also change out the qualities that you value. So it could be kindness, it could be peace, it could be contentment, tolerance, equanimity. All of these spiritual qualities are things that you can uh, work with to as you bring um, this intention towards your experience. But what you're not trying to do is become a person who is always like this. So it's, you're not trying to become a person that's always at peace. You're not trying to be like, may I be peaceful? May I be a peaceful person, as an example? Uh, I, I'm trying to frame it so it's much more about orienting your relationship, orienting towards your relationship to whatever is going on and, and, and injecting that relationship with the intention of the phrase itself. So the way it works is you, you, know, you start out and just relax in, in meditation for a little bit. And then softly drop in the intention of the phrase. May I receive this experience with kindness, peace, and equanimity. And then after you repeat the phrase once and only once, the idea is to just rest into the space of your heart. I know there was a little question about that when we went over it live last time. Um, just You may not feel very much here, but just let your awareness settle into the heart space and be open to the intentionality intoned by the phrase. So just listen, sort of listen to whatever reverberates in your heart space after you articulate the phrase. And then with time, uh, again, because this is quite subtle, because the experience of the, of the chest and heart space is quite subtle, your mind is likely to drift off. And that's important. As I've, I've said it again and again and again, your mind needs to move off in order for this practice to really develop, um, develop in you. So your mind will drift off, not a problem. Whenever you notice your mind having drifted off, the first thing is to recognize that it's happened. Oh, your mind's, my mind's drifted. Okay. Then the second piece after recognizing it is to relax physically. So relax your face, relax your shoulders, your arms, your body, your torso, your legs. Really do a systematic relaxation. Because whenever you drift off, the mind will be drawn into its own thought world, which again is ultimately not a problem, but it tends to carry with it um, the emotional charge of the thoughts. 
so when you get pulled into a desiring mind state or an aversive mind state or a confused mind state, you know, the, the tone of that mind state tends to manifest as a pattern in the body. And usually it's a pattern of tension. So as a, as a step, as a vital step to release yourself from the, the preoccupation of being in those uh, different thought worlds, relaxation of the body on a physical level is, is key. So spend some time, take two or three seconds or longer to just really um, issue a, an encouragement to relax the body. Once the body's relaxed, then the second step is to gently re-smile, to, to create a soft, energetic smile, either through the mouth, corners of the cheeks, or through the eyes. So it doesn't have to be a big grin like this, but just, you know, as I've been noticing, uh, particularly in the pandemic, we have to wear masks all the time. And that ability to connect with a stranger with a smile is very difficult. But I've been really emphasizing myself, like, what would it mean to smile with my eyes more? And, you know, it can get into looking a little creepy at times. But uh, in the meditation, to smile with your eyes or cheeks is similar to what we're doing with, with, with smile at someone with, with a mask on. But the point is that the smile reinforces the attitude of the mind to be friendly towards experience. And there's often when you when you initiate the smile, there will be a, a sort of a a felt cascade of change through your body. It, it, it sort of has a way of tranquilizing the bodily experience, so you feel softer, more relaxed, more at ease. And just try to feel that as you smile, feel what the, the sort of the biochemical effect of the smile is on your physical body. But once you've relaxed, once you've reestablished the smile, then you can now repeat your phrase once. May I meet or may I hold this experience with peace and equanimity? And then feel into the heart space, whatever reverberates or resonates within your chest. As and when you catch your mind having wandered, the whole cycle repeats. You recognize it, relax again physically, return the smile, and then repeat the phrase again. So that I just want to uh, continue on with having you work with that much of the instruction for now. Please send me any questions if you have them about the instruction. I'm happy to respond to you. Uh, we do have hot spots now, so I can do some emailing. Um, but please let me know how that's going for you. Um, please, if you have a chance, check out that conversation I sent out with Robert Wright uh, because. And whenever I get my Wi-Fi up and running, he and I will continue to have um, some ongoing conversations. And we're going to start to look at specific cognitive biases, things like attribution error or um, confirmation bias, and talk about how those can, can lead us to ways of seeing and acting that don't take in account either our, our higher intentions or take into the dynamics of what's actually going on in front of us. Um, but I'm hoping that the combination of my exposure to Bob and his worldview and sort of gleaning insights from his worldview and then taking them into how I, I think about the Dharma and share the Dharma with you, I'm hoping that this is a, a, a good uh, collaboration of sorts, that it's a, a helpful inter, intertwining of a few different things that will hopefully produce and lead to uh, a very enriched and a live uh, practice for you. One that's, if I were to summarize, one that's very humane, that is not trying to, to overcome our biology, our very human biology, but one that helps us transcend the, um, the dynamics of evolutionary psychology that kind of were selected for at least 10, going back at least 10,000 years ago and probably much longer and uh, how we can uh, learn to recognize those, those, those influences and uh, better uh, transform their energy so that we can thrive in the environment that we're in, so that we can be comfortable and alive in all conditions. Okay, guys, that was a bit longer than I intended. I apologize for the ramble. Um, 
but uh, I'm not used to giving talks to myself and only myself. So I hope you're doing well. I hope you had a good two weeks break. Um, I'm thinking of many of you individually that I can remember off the top of my head. And I hope you're all doing well. And, and I know Terry and I are very eager to look back, or come back uh, on online with you live soon. Likely, um, that will be at the earliest next week, but likely it's going to be two weeks before we're live again. So we'll be sending out these recordings, uh, uploading them into the library, and you will have uh, this content over the next couple of weeks. But stay tuned. We'll be sending out newsletters um, or updates through the email about what we're doing, how things are progressing. But uh, those of you that have responded to us, we feel your love. We feel your appreciation. We feel your support. And we are incredibly grateful to that or for that. So thank you all. Thank you for practice. Thank you for your attention. After this talk, now sit with yourself for 20 or 30 minutes. Enjoy your sitting. And I'll see you soon. Thanks so much for listening to today's talk. As I said at the in the introduction, if you would like to participate in our Sangha's events, whether it's the online classes or the recordings of classes that we offer in our library online, um, you can do so by visiting the link in the show notes or by going to www.joshsummers.net forward slash Sangha. That's S-A-N-G-H-A. Again, I very much look forward to further exploring these themes. These themes are very alive in my own practice, and as I always like to say, I, I share from my practice to yours. So until next time, I wish you all the best. Stay safe, stay strong, keep practicing, and we'll connect soon again. <laughs>